Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, a podcast presented by New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Eric Gruby, a visiting assistant professor studying Germany and Austria in the Department of History at Boston College. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Martin Kalb to talk about his latest book, which is a truly brilliant work of scholarship. I highly recommend you all get your hands on a copy as soon as possible. Martin Kalb is a historian of modern European history with an emphasis on Germany and its empires. His research focuses on social cultural history, as well as colonial and environmental history. In his first monograph, titled Coming of Age, Constructing and Controlling Youth in Munich, 1942 to 1973, he traces images of youth and how authorities employed them to expand mechanisms of social control. In his more recent work, He has focused on German colonialism in Southwest Africa. His recent monograph, titled Environing Empire, Nature, Infrastructure, and the Making of German Southwest Africa, is in the center of our discussion today. It was just published in April in the Environment in History International Perspective Series with Berghahn Books. Martin holds a position of Associate Professor of History at Bridgewater College, a small liberal arts college located in Virginia. Professor Kalb, Thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for having me, Eric, and for giving me the time and space to talk a little bit about my research. Wonderful. I say, let's just go right into it. So so please tell us, how did you come to this topic? So yeah, thank you. My my work on this topic has been in the making for some time. I've been interested in Imperial Germany and kind of the making of empire, at least since my MA program in Germany. My PhD work was partially tied to to environmental history, and also my teaching in Arizona and now here in Virginia has kind of deepened an interest and centered more on German Southwest Africa kind of over the years, so modern-day Namibia. At the time that I got interested, scholarship had begun to emerge that was mostly focusing on colonial violence and genocide. There was also some discussion of the German-speaking community in Southwest Africa. And I found those studies quite fascinating, and they kind of sucked me into a historiographical conversation about continuities, about ruptures. But also, the more I dug into some of that existing scholarship, I had several questions for myself, mainly about the pre-1884 period, so kind of conquering my own ignorance of how had African groups, so Herrero, Nama, Obambo, and others shaped the land, how had other European powers seen the space before the Germans showed up. And then I also felt that the environment was often kind of overlooked. It just kind of was in the backdrop, was the stage for humans to play out their history. And I thought that was a little limiting. So yeah, that's how I got interested in this topic over the the last 10 years or so. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's really illuminating to see the the environments not just be a backdrop here, but kind of brought to the foreground, I think is really, really an interesting um, take on this. So 
your book uses to that end uses a a certain optic out of um, environmental infrastructure to examine the topic of German colonialism in Southwest Africa. I was wondering, could you walk us through the paradigm of environmental infrastructure? Yeah, thank you. I'm I'm, I'm very grateful to reviewers that kind of pointed me towards that particular framework in the in the in the writing of the book or in the writing process of the book. I had originally thought about my book project along the lines of imperial fantasies or imaginations on one hand and kind of these local everyday realities on the ground on the other. That's a framework that some of the scholarship on German Southwest Africa has dealt with, has used for a while. Colonial history has employed for a while, but it never quite satisfied me. To me, it has been, had kind of this limited analytical potential. I thought it was more descriptive than anything else. So once I kind of stumbled on or was pointed to the framework of environmental infrastructure, it became a very fruitful thought process for me. And it really helped for me to, to kind of wrap the book together, if you will. The concept comes from historian Emanuel Kreike, and he kind of aims to move us beyond the division between nature on one hand and culture on the other, so this binary. And he argues, and I'm going to quote him directly here, that structure constitute, quote, a co-production of human ingenuity and labor on the one hand, and non-human actors, so animals, insects, microbes, plants, and forces, so physical and chemical, on the other, unquote. So that really helped me to not just acknowledge human actions, human agency, but to also think about non-human players and kind of the environment more broadly. Now for the for imperial infrastructure, more specifically, most scholars discuss human ingenuity. Some also give the needed credit to labor but non-human actors or forces are generally not really featuring into the studies as much as I would have liked to see. And that's what would intrigue me. I will also say that I personally find it essential to think more critically about human ingenuity and labor. Scholarship sometimes discusses just German ingenuity or German labor, but it doesn't really acknowledge that we have African expertise as well, that we have African labor, be it migrant labor, be it contract labor, be it forced labor, kind of doing the work. And I really wanted to tease that out. And the environmental infrastructure concept was very helpful for me to do so. And I hope the readers will appreciate that as well. Well, certainly, yeah, it, it definitely makes for a kind of enthralling through line to see throughout throughout the work. Um, I would say what's sort of the the main takeaway, right, of bringing this environmental infrastructure to bear on the topic of German colonialism in Southwest Africa. Yeah, thank you. So in the in the book, I kind of walk readers mostly in, in the introduction through kind of these four main takeaways, and then uh, they're weaved throughout the book. So these are the arguments in a sense, if you will. So first, building on that framework kind of allows me to pay attention to nature's agency. So that means I discuss the importance of the Benguela current and the Namib Desert. I show how both make up somewhat of a borderland that shaped German, German efforts to access Namibia. I pay attention to nature's agency also in the sense of non-human actors. So supposedly stubborn camels, microbes that are responsible for the Rinderpest pandemic. Or there's a shipworm that I talk about, kind of an ocean termite that starts eating up landing structures in Swakopmund. So it's kind of the first point is build this kind of nature's agency, kind of acknowledging that this doesn't happen in a vacuum. Second, I emphasize that you the, the how humans view nature, so and what that tells us about humans. So the stories we tell ourselves can teach us as historians, I think, a lot about contemporary mentalities and identities, mindsets, if you will. In the case of German colonialists, they repeatedly employ these storylines of conquest, transformation, development, progress. So these very positive that something better is going to happen. They also talk repeatedly about this toil and battle. They talk about blood and soil, in a sense. They talk about 
settler colonial narratives of conquering new spaces. And that, of course, we always have to acknowledge became quite devastating for the indigenous population. The latter, of course, had their own views and their own stories about nature and had long transformed nature. And I also weave those stories into that. So it's not just about the colonial storyline, even though it is titled Making of German Southwest Africa. Those are in the center, but they are in kind of a relationship to the to other stories that are told as well. The third point that I try to, well, the third argument, if you will, I make is that my approach helps explore what scholars have kind of titled this rule of experts. So who are the individuals that are brought in that encapsulate, personify these colonial mindsets? There are some players in the book that are well known, such as Robert Koch, the epidemiologist. But there's also some that I introduce that are new players. So engineer Theodor Rebock or Alexander Kuhn who kind of try to solve the water question. I talk about women for empire, to borrow a term that Laura Wildenthal coined. And I talk again about African experts as well. So I specifically use that term experts to point readers, audiences to the language and the importance of language that West African crewmen, for instance, who navigate the ocean waters for the Germans are experts in doing that even though we don't give them that credit generally. And then maybe as the last point, or the, the fourth main takeaway, is that building on the concept of environmental infrastructure allows me to think about this connection between conquest, transformation, and destruction. So to put it simply, death and development kind of went hand in hand in German Southwest Africa, as they arguably tend to in colonial settings in general. So we see the disruption of ecosystems with the slaughtering of whales and other animals. We later see efforts to transform arid spaces, which by default included the subjugation, exploitation, and eventually also the virtual annihilation of certain groups, so Herrera, Nama, and others. And we see this everyday violence, so genocide even. And that's, to me, an, an, an essential ingredient when it comes to comes to that storyline. And I think environmental infrastructure kind of helps me shed light on that. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's really sort of eye-opening to see the extent to which kind of construction and destruction were two sides of the same colonial coin here. Um, to kind of get a little bit into the the narrative of the book, now that we've done sort of the, the opening paradigm and the arguments, um, your first chapter kind of orients the reader with the pre-colonial history of peoples in this region. I was wondering if you could give us some context about that history of Southwest Africa and its peoples before the, the advent of, of German imperialism. Yeah, thank you. So, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's key. It's essential to talk a little bit about that pre-colonial history, if you will. So first, the, the, the spaces are important, but then also the people that have inhabited those spaces have long shaped them and eventually how then European new, newcomers arrive. And I find that essential because it gives us a better understanding of why the Germans are doing certain things and not others. But it also gives us a sense of what is lost due to German colonialism, so what was there and what is gone. But it also, again, gives some agency to those voices that have long existed in that, in that place. And I found it a little frustrating that some of the scholarship just kind of sets in with German arrival, which is in, in all kinds of ways a little bit limiting. So I'll give you, a, I'll, I'll give listeners a little bit of a, a sense of the space first, and then maybe of the of, of, of the people that are inhabiting those spaces. So Namibia is, or modern day Namibia sits kind of between Angola, Botswana, and South Africa. Its coastline is defined by the Benguela Current, which kind of flows in a cyclical motion up the coastline, so northward, and kind of makes waters very difficult to navigate. There's a reason why empires stayed away for the longest time trying to reach them from the coastline. The coastline is also defined by the Namib Desert, which is one of the oldest uh, desert landscapes in the world. In many parts of the coastline, the Namib actually reaches all the way to the coast, which creates this very stunning contrast between the dark kind of blue ocean waters of the Atlantic Ocean and then these steep sand dunes of the desert. 
The desert is also difficult to cross. It's arid, it's steep, it's it's just hard to get into the interior if you're arriving from the ocean. In general, Namibia is a very arid space. In the book, I define it as an unstable or a non-equilibrium environment. That's a term I borrow from C.N. Sullivan, who has written a little bit about that sort of ecological space, if you will. The space, as I mentioned, has long been inhabited. There's generally speaking, Namibia is inhabited by kind of two groups, Khoisan speakers, so that includes Nama, for instance, or San. And then there are Bantu speakers, though they migrated into the region later. That includes Herero, for instance, or Wambo. And the Sanver hunter-gatherers, Herero may be best described as nomadic pastoralists. And along the coast, the newcomers, the Europeans kind of engage in that frontier space, space with some of those individuals that live on the coastline. And I talk about that a little bit at the beginning or in that first chapter of the book. Yeah, I, I was really sort of taken with this, this, this idea that you convey is that the, the coastline itself, both the ocean and the coastal desert, was, was treacherous and daunting for Europeans, while indigenous groups seemed kind of equipped to traverse this space, uh, at least the kind of desert portions, right? And, and you even present this coastal space as a, as a borderland. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit, what exactly do you mean by that term, right? Are you, is this sort of meant as invoking the analytical category, sort of, if so, like, how are you, how are you doing so throughout the book? Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm thinking about it from, from different points of view, from different angles. So just to give you a sense for, for those groups living there in the, in the area of Walvis Bay, for instance, it's Topna Narma, there's other groups it's, it marks a, 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 an actual border space, meaning this is how far they go. They rarely venture into the ocean because they fish, but they don't go further into the ocean. It's not really beneficial to them. So this is almost the end of their, if you will, of their, of their world. And for Europeans, for the longest time, Europeans and on some level later Americans, it also marks a border space. The Portuguese became kind of the first that pecked their way southward along the coastline looking for that route to India. They stopped briefly a couple of times, left behind their stone padres, so the crosses, and then kept sailing because in their view, there was little to gain here. There was no cattle, there was no gold, there was no slaves. It was just this inhospitable space that they couldn't really cross. Later, the Dutch show up, and only over time do these European and later American uh, newcomers, if you will, realize that there are things to gain and those are commodities. So the Benguela current, even though it's quite dangerous to sail in, is incredibly rich as an ecosystem. There is space for seabirds, there's whales, there's seals, and all of these kind of became pull factors to suck Europeans and Americans into that area. So they started eventually whaling, sealing, later they started mining guano. And this is when then this border space or this frontier becomes a space of encounter, this contact zone between newcomers from the ocean and local groups that are living along the coastline. And they are both gaining from this. They're both they're both benefiting from this original trade, if you will. The Europeans need to find water. The Europeans sometimes want some sort of labor. And the, the local groups know where stuff is. They got cattle, which the Europeans cannot envision anyone could have in these desert spaces. And the first chapter talks a little bit about these interactions and then also what comes out of it. So what are the takeaways? Why does that matter later on? And I'll just mention two here. For one, it's the reason why the British show up in the first place and why they then eventually decide we need to take one of the most strategically valuable spaces, and that's Walvis Bay, the only natural harbor in, in central Namibia. That's the reasons the Germans don't have it. That's the reasons the Germans have to build their own. And that's the reasons the Germans later have all these difficulties accessing the country. And the other takeaway here to kind of keep nature in mind is just the incredible destruction that they bring. So the disruption of ecosystem, the killing of thousands of whales and the just clubbing of seals, and also just the agency that dumb animals then bring to the table of then just migrating elsewhere, 
completely leaving certain spaces behind because they realize what they will encounter given this kind of boom and bust mentality in this commodity at that commodity frontier if you will yeah wonderful it was it was really sort of heavy reading some of the kind of the as you said that horrific rapacious destruction of of the animals um and also just fascinating learning about the the kind of the island of guano to be to be sort of mined as you said right um speaking about this this question of of harbors um and and kind of points of entry the rest of your your narrative chapters are centered on a a certain infrastructure project during the german colonial period I was wondering, um, what were some of the key kind of German infrastructure plans or discourses and objectives uh, to turn the space into a sort of quote unquote functional settler colony? Sort of, what were what were your narrative tentpoles here? Yeah, thank you. So, so I'm kind of tracing these newcomers from the from the ocean. There's already, of course, interaction in the in the interior, which I also talk about in that first chapter traders, hunters, businessmen, missionaries, movements of people from namely South Africa spilling into what will eventually become Southwest Africa. But in the context of making a, making German Southwest Africa, I kind of have these, yeah, tentpoles, I really enjoy, enjoy that word, uh, along, the, along the way. And the first one are harbors. So how do you actually access this country? The Germans arrive in 18 or in 1884, the, the, the colony becomes a, a German protectorate. They kind of take over Angra Pequena, as it's called at the time, which is further Thaus and later known as Luderitzbucht. And that's a natural harbor that gives them access into the southern part of the colony. It actually consists of a couple of bays. It's okay to navigate. It's not easy, but at least you can kind of anchor your ships there and then you can move inward. But it has all kinds of problems. There's no drinking water. They have to buy that in Cape Town and then bring it in or have it delivered, which is a logistical nightmare and really, really expensive. They try to set up these condensation boxes, kind of make their water. That's not enough. They have to cross the Namib Desert, which is tricky. And they have to kind of make this all pay for itself because they're hoping to find diamonds, which they don't, or gold, at least not yet. And it all kind of falls apart. The businessman who is in charge of these early endeavors out of Luderitz actually goes bankrupt. He eventually dies somewhere along the Orange River looking for better access. So it doesn't go well. The British are not giving up Walvis Bay. And that is when the Germans then start looking for a different harbor. It gives them access to central Namibia, this higher plateau with better land where they can reach Windhoek, which will eventually become their capital is already a center of African cultures in that in that space. And they eventually look up and down the coast and they decide they're going to build a harbor north of the mouth of the Swakop River. They call it Swakopmund. And they're going to invest millions, millions upon millions to try to make that harbor work. First, they build a concrete pier, which eventually silts in. They then build kind of this wooden jetty temporarily because they need that harbor, especially during the 1904 war, to just bring in supplies and support their troops. That gets eaten up by this naval shipworm, this kind of ocean termite. And later on, they invest in this metal jetty that never really gets done prior to World War I. It's not completed prior to World War I. So all of these structures, if we then apply this environmental infrastructure framework, are defined by human ingenuity. So German ingenuity, building these structures, thinking about these structures, but also African ingenuity. At one point, they bring in these West African crewmen that know how to navigate the coastal waters. They're picked up in places like Monrovia and then help them figure stuff out. These structures are defined by labor. So in this case, African contract or forced labor, which is quite brutal, but they also, as you got an idea, defined by sand movement and by non-human actors. So let's say the ship worm. So all of these structures tell, uh, kind of are useful to make sense of what's happening and give, and give readers, hopefully, a sense of how it plays out. So harbors is one tent pole. 
There's another tentpole that kind of weaves throughout the book that's then transportation inland. How do you cross the Namib Desert? How do you overcome once the rinderpest hit that all your oxen and your cattle in general is just devastated? How do you build a railway? Where do you build it? What are the problems with building it? And again, we can talk about, well, I talk about the human ingenuity, the labor part is devastating, especially for railway construction, but also the natural factors, so render pass, or just the railways being constantly flushed away by, by rivers that the Germans just didn't know existed. And then maybe the, the last tentpole before I then kind of lead us into this kind of what happens afterwards is the trying to solve this water question. Once you're inland and you solved, quote unquote, the access question, how do you then sustain a population? The Germans wanted to have living space. They wanted to settle the space with Germans. This is kind of their big fantasy, their big idea. And now they're there. How do you get them water in a very dry and arid land? So that section then talks about all these visions about building dams, drilling wells, trying to turn a desert or an outwardly desert space into the settler paradise, the setbacks they deal with, but all of this incredible kind of kind of superiority complex that we as the Germans will solve this, we will do this. Others haven't tried hard enough. Africans certainly haven't tried hard enough. That's kind of the mindset that they go in with. So these temples, these projects are defined by labor, ingenuity, by human and non-human actors, if you will. They're also defined by African resistance. They're disrupted repeatedly, interrupted. So that's where the war kind of fills and fits in as well. I dedicate two chapters into this kind of colonial war, the genocide that plays out from 1904 to 1908. And yeah, the last chapter is then maybe the final tentpole when it comes to what happens after the war. So money has been spent, Germans have, have died, German blood has been spilled, as German newspapers would say. Well, now we can't pull back. Now we really have to invest. The, the, there's a discovery of diamonds that brings more money into the colony. It looks, it looks like something can change now when it comes to turning this vision of a white settler paradise into a reality. And that's what the last chapter then focuses on. So it unpacks that development of a Southwesterner identity, the settler mentality, these narratives of conquering the land, of trying all this stuff out, trying to plant tobacco, trying to even plant cotton, trying to do agriculture, maybe cattle farming, trying to bring water in, and just the stories that are told around that. And if the Germans wouldn't have lost the colony, then they might have really been successful. So that's then the sort of making moment of what German Southwest Africa is supposed to be. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah thank you so much it's really it really covers so much ground um sort of literally and figuratively it's 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 quite impressive to to see that and also quite um moving and, and upsetting to see just sort of the horrific violence um meted out sort of the germans enacted in the name of their sort of perceived sense of exceptionalism or um, what, what have you, uh, especially with the, not only the violence in the war, but also the forced labor and the, the horrible 
um, like labor camps, concentration camps. Right? So sort of your work does a, a really great job of, of centering indigenous African peoples, including their labor, their skills, their, their acts of resistance, their expansive knowledge, right. And their, their tragedies. Um, and you also all the while, you know, pay really good attention to the, the diversity of these indigenous groups and cultures. So I was wondering if you could um, expand for us on the both the role of indigenous groups and indigenous knowledge and ways of knowing, and um, also sort of what what methods or sources did you use to to uncover these these voices to kind of to kind of get at these this this information. Thank you. Yeah, the I, th- I find incorporating these indigenous voices and giving them agency sometimes for the first time or sometimes just more, or I gave the example of calling certain groups experts explicitly to kind of elevate them in the story, just essential to disrupt some of these colonial narratives and these storylines that are sometimes still floating around explicitly or implicitly in some of the scholarship or the the public discourse. But doing so, if I think about the methodology question or the part of your question there, is tricky because of the imperial archives. So there's ways to read against the grain to disrupt colonial narratives. There's also ways to to get at the diversity of perspectives that you hinted at. And I'll give you the example of labor when it when it comes to that of how to try to make that work with all its problems and with all its limitations, of course, given the the source materials we have and the silences that exist. So in a place like Swakamund or Luderlitzbucht, so these two German harbors. We have different kinds of labor. So we have migrant labor from Ovambos in the north. We have contract labor from West African crewmen and South African workers. And we then have forced labor. And for some of these groups, we have oral histories. For instance, West African crewmen have some oral history, oral traditions that others have done delightful work on that I can then build on. So standing on the shoulders, if you will, of some other scholar of all the scholarship before mine. We have voices from South African contract laborers. They're in the British archives. And they describe, for instance, the violence. So we get a sense through those of what, let's say, forced laborers experienced when they build the, the pier in Swakamund or the wooden jetty or what or whatnot. So we get it get at it from there. But then there's also hints at the German in the German colonial records. There are there are documents that talk about Africans resisting by just escaping constantly to nearby Walvis Bay, digging through a concrete floor. There's one story in the book that talks about that, digging through a concrete floor just to get out because it's just horrible to work for the Germans or to be forced to work for the Germans. Or then there's also once in a while specific examples that then kind of confirm the suspicion one should have as a scholar talking or reading those sources kind of hidden in, in, in the record, if you will. So the leading engineer for the construction of the concrete beer in Swakamund at one point writes about treating Africans, quote unquote, appropriately. And then one gets a little suspicious. And then later on in the record, one will then find at least one instance where he specifically signed an order for 25 blows against a worker for, quote, laziness on the job. So it gets then pretty concise of what that might mean and sustains the larger point. So it's it's a it's the need to use a diverse a diverse set of materials from different angles, the British or through the British archives or the Cape Cape Colony records, through the German archives, its oral traditions and histories. And it's then the sort of reading against the grain and just being careful of what stories are told, who they're told to, but there's still big silences in there. So it's just puzzling it together and then trying to to try to elevate some of the voices that are generally left out and giving giving them credit for for for, for the work that is done, for the resistance that is the that the, the fight there there the fight they make against the the German colonial powers and how they basically respond, if you will. Yeah, it's, it's incredible to see just what can be pieced together from these sort of seemingly disparate 
um, source material. That's it's it's very impressive to see the the not only incorporating and, and centering the indigenous histories, but also keeping that kind of diversity itself um, um, in mind at all times. Right. Um, sort of on the flip side of that that question. I, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about the kind of German colonial gaze here, right? the extent to which the, the environment, the landscapes to them were sort of seemed to be sort of background or like advert, like an adversary almost. Um, so I was wondering if you could kind of speak a bit about that and kind of how that intersected in your work about German ideas of gender as mm-hmm. well, right? Seem to kind of play a role here. Yeah. Thank you. No, they, I think you, you nicely hint at it when it comes to the the views that they have of the landscape that they bring with them. There's originally a lot of misinformation that many of the German newcomers arrive with as they get to the colony. So if one looks at or reads some of the travel accounts when they originally lay eyes on what Southwest Africa actually looks like, they're all surprised. There's no vegetation here. The settlement of Clyde Small seems like the end of the world. When they try to land in Swakamund, it's dangerous. People people fall in the water. It's ice cold. It's foggy. So it just doesn't gel with how they think of Africa in their mind, having just heard of it from the other side of the globe. They then all developed some of these frontier identities. So for settlers, it becomes this kind of battling against nature at the edges of empire story. They dig for water. They try to plant certain vegetables. They are fighting against nature and indigenous groups. And those two are then always, or many times, not always kind of conflated that this, the land is wild, as are the people. And it's okay to conquer the land and with that automatically the people. So it kind of becomes almost a self, uh, kind of a, a connection in, in that way. And, that, and at first glance, these stories seem very male dominated. But in the book, I try to try to argue or try to point out that they're, that they're not always. There's a lot of, of women's, women's stories in there. They're central to the experience. They have their own battles. So they are the ones keeping the vegetable garden, garden, this, this kind of small little plot. That's their, their piece that they do as these wives at home. They need to, they need to water it. They need to make sure they etch it out against these, these powers, be they sand covering it or just the heat or local Africans not knowing what they're doing. So they need to do that civilizing work. They're the ones that educate and raise the children on these islands of civilization, a sea of wilderness, as it's sometimes put. So they're the ones that hold the fort, if you will, that hold the house. And the husbands are the ones out doing the kind of manly labor. So these are very traditional gender roles in in a sense. And once the war comes in 1904, then the husbands are off to war and the women have to hold it all together. So these become kind of these heroic storylines within the German-speaking community that then define the Sudwester identity. And it's fascinating because they claim in these storylines that they are very independent, that they are disconnected and very self-sufficient away from the metropole, away from Berlin, away even from the center of the empire on some level, even from from Bintok, but they're actually not. They're deeply dependent on assistance. So they get the land for a lower price, or sometimes they can just claim it. They benefit from all these infrastructure projects. They're the ones that get to ride the train. They're the ones that get to the board in the harbor. They get access to cheap labor, forced labor. They get to behave against those workers however they want. They get the protection of the law. African Herero don't get that protection. And they get all kinds of subsidies along the way, be it for drilling or be it for building a dam. So they're very dependent, if you will. Now, that's not to say, as I point out in the book, that they're not working hard or that life is easy for them. But there is a context piece in there. And I think that matters when we talk about an imperial space to just kind of elevate their mindset and how that's how they felt. And we need to acknowledge that on some level, but the reality sometimes is very different and they're just seeing it through a specific discourse lens or, or gaze, if you will, mindset. 
Yeah, thank you. It's to see the the extent to which the as you point out, kind of this this rugged notion of kind of a frontier mentality. It's always, as you say, important to, to point out that the the structures and system is built for them, right? To to function sort of an interesting, as you say, reliance there that I find find very fascinating. Um, I wanted to to ask about something that I think is probably going to be on at this point a fair number of our listeners' minds, which is, you know, the book speaks a fair amount about you know horrific warfare, violence, forced labor, um, concentration camps, genocide, right? So out of curiosity, right? How how does in your view the the later Nazi history, right, which I, I get you don't discuss in this work, given that, that it ends within the, with the loss of the colony in 1915. But at the same time, how does that sort of larger or kind of, or such a, a kind of infamous um, later story, how does that sort of feature into all of this? Yeah. If at all. Yeah, no, thank you. I think it's, it's on the mind certainly for, for anybody doing this sort of this sort of work i i don't discuss as you mentioned the nazi period necessarily in any shape or form specifically because the book is trying to do a lot already so somehow would take away from some of the stories i would like to tell especially when we talk about african agency more specifically which one could say is an argument in itself to not include too much on the on the Nazi period. I do discuss some of the continuities in regard to colonial mindsets and when they pertain to infrastructure, and those go well beyond 1915, as listeners will probably assume on some level. So there are certain ideas that continue to define the landscape in Southern Africa more broadly. There's, of course, pretty easy continuities for the German settler community, for those that return after they had left the colony maybe for some time, or those that also stayed during World War I, they're finding sometimes a very welcoming home in an apartheid-dominated South Africa that's now controlling former German Southwest Africa. So the, the, the narratives linger, if you will, about empty space, about development, transformation, the conquest of nature, the infrastructure projects, some of them continue to be implemented even to this day when it comes to what we, what, what certain groups see could be done in modern day Namibia. And then maybe to the point about broader, this, this question of continuities and ruptures that I guess German history, history in general is all about. I think there are clearly broader trajectories and mindsets that I mentioned that linger, and that applies here as well. And I would say that one can certainly argue then maybe, in my view, more about the level of these continuities or the importance of them or certain moments, certain, certain, certain elements. What I try to do is more talk about the 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 complexity of it all. So for me, the violence comes through an array of, of avenues. It's an imperial mindset. It's individuals that make certain choices, Loda von Trotha, for instance, or certainly choices in Berlin or elsewhere. But there's local circumstances as well that mattered. There's African resistance that mattered. So it just gets messy. And what I have found really helpful is the recent book by Matthias Häusler, who talks a little bit about the fear and paranoia among German soldiers and how they reacted to that and why they might have behaved certain ways. And yeah, so it's it's complex. It's that's sometimes where I find comparisons can be helpful to kind of to tease out nuances, similarities and differences, but sometimes can also be limiting. And at least for me, I'm interested in like a specific space, a specific circumstance and less of these broader narratives and comparisons. And that's one of the reasons why I didn't move beyond much beyond the 1915 timeframe. Wonderful. Yeah, I really certainly appreciate kind of that that approach in the sense of it being a very sort of deep dive into um, the context here, which I think is, as you say, kind of allows that kind of messiness to be understood or conceptualized in a way that's, that's, that's more fitting 
and does more justice to the topic at hand, right? I think is is very important to take stock of that fact, right? Um, getting here towards towards the end of our our interview, um, it's times flying by very quickly. Um, I just wanted to ask, sort of, what do you think? What do we, as sort of a scholarly community or society in general, um, stand to to gain from applying the theory and methodological toolkit of environmental infrastructure? Right? How does it advance our understanding of German colonialism in Southwest Africa or Namibian history or colonialism more broadly? Yeah, just sort of, kind of those um, the the what what is the contribution towards kind of societal understanding i guess yeah thank you so i guess in the vein of of historical answers by historians to that questions it's always the piece of it complicates existing understandings right but then how does it do that isn't always the, the the big question and i'll point maybe to two ways that i hope or i think the book does that and does help us understand certain things a little more when it comes to colonial German and Namibian history more specifically. So maybe first, I think we gain a much better under, but let me phrase it this way. I think we can gain much from uh, paying attention to non-human actors. So just the environment, just acknowledging it opens up so many doors for further questions, for additional information, for, kind of more more answers on some level. So to give you give you a sense, there's in this case it gives us a better understanding of why the Germans got increasingly frustrated, why they spent more and more money. And that leads to questions, well, where does that money come from? That has to be that has to be approved by somebody. It then raises questions of how that influences the Metropole, so the Reichstag and other bodies that have to sign off on some of these projects. The additional work that had to be done to rebuild another structure because the previous one was washed away or whatever it might be, then also gives us a sense of the continuing uh, suffering of the African population that had to do that work that was yet again employed. I spend a big chunk of the book talking about when I focus on the, the war and genocide on the role of forced labor and how that is an integral part of understanding genocide in this particular case and how infrastructure is tied to that. The infrastructure fail, African bodies have to make up for that, and that's devastating. The stories that are told, I think, when we talk about nature and pay attention to nature, it gives us a sense of what stories are told about nature, and that then helps us understand what what, what does it mean to be a colonialist during that time in the German mind. So it's kind of a plug for environmental history on some level to acknowledge it, to not just let human history play out on this empty stage. No, there's factors that are that are key. And maybe as a second kind of takeaway, if you will, to narrow it down to two, is just the importance that I hope, well, I hope the book helps to disrupt, maybe even to decolonize in a weird way, the colonial narratives of development and transformation. This storyline of, well, the Germans build railways and roads. So those positive spins on things or a landing jetty was built. So let's use the passive voice to not acknowledge certain things. So if anything, and I would highlight that the Germans forced Africans to build railways and roads for white settlers. So there was a specific intention and purpose there. And that then opens the door to kind of talk about colonial violence, which I would say, and I hope the book does that as well, that that the book exposes kind of this devastating nature of German colonialism that's not just visible in, in genocide, but is visible in the forced labor and the structures that are put in place and just in the everyday. So it's not just about that moment of war, but it's that's part of the colonial project. And, and that has to be argued strongly, I think, given certain narratives and even scholarship on some level that is still out there. Wonderful. Yeah, I, I have to say this book is absolutely fantastic. Um, and I would just wanted to to ask as sort of a concluding question, last question here. What uh, what are your plans for your, your next project? 
Yeah, thanks. I, I'm still you doing some of these, I guess one could say, smaller project or spin-offs of elements that didn't really make it into the book. So one is likely going to focus on or is focusing on conservation, which in itself is a, is a topic that doesn't really get much discussed in the book, German conservation efforts and how that plays out. There's an environmental element in there, of course. There's other kind of spins, spin-offs. I'm just finalizing a, uh, an article that focuses on German South, on that kind of space between German Southwest Africa, British Bechuana land and the Cape Colony and how a specific NAMA captain, Simon Copper, employed that space to resist against German colonialism. For the lar- for a larger, another book project, I'm playing around with a couple of ideas. I'll have to see what I find in the archives first and where that takes me, but I'm still very much interested in this time period and in this particular space, but we will see where, where it'll take me. Wonderful. Yeah, I, it's it's really, really great to see sort of this, 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 history of kind of the, the, as you said, kind of the day in, day out lived history of this space rather than something that's sort of centered on sort of big battles and, and kind of things like that. It's to kind of get that experiential uh, read is something that, that makes it all the more powerful and important, I think. So um, with that, I would say thank you so much for being here with me. And this has been an interview with Dr. Martin Kalb. His new book, Environing Empire, is out now with Miracon Books, and I would highly recommend everyone go grab a copy. Thank you again for being here. Thank you so much, Eric. I appreciate you making the time and yes, giving me a platform to introduce the book a little bit. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.